Well, good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. If you have a Bible and you want to turn, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, as we just read. And so as you make your way there, in honor of a new year, I've told you before about things that I am kind of afraid of, but uh, now I want to tell you some of the things that I'm annoyed by. So it's kind of the annual airing of uh, grievances. And so these are some of my pet peeves. And, and so in no particular order, here are just a few things that I don't really enjoy. The first one is watching commercials. Right, historically, when I was growing up, commercials you'd only encounter in one place, and that was whenever you happened to be watching TV. Then we invented ways to get around that, and then commercials responded by basically being everywhere. And so uh, now it's not only in commercials, but it's movies that you watch. It's when you log on to your bank, there's a commercial there. Uh, I've even heard about some uh, online sermons from certain churches that uh, have commercials interspersed, uh, YouTube, airline announcements, and on and on you could go. They are ubiquitous. And unless it's like the Super Bowl or something, I never watch a commercial and think, I'm really glad that I watched that advertisement. I'll watch this uh, 30-second spot on the relevance of milk, and, uh, and I'll think, if only the dairy syndicate had just saved that money, I could have saved 30 seconds of time and uh, 30 cents on a carton of milk, uh, but no, they had to go and make milk sexy or something like that. So that's my pet peeve number one, is watching commercials. My second pet peeve is uh, it, uh, uh, those people who, for whatever reason, they stick out their hands whenever I'm already holding a door open for them. And, and I don't know why they do that. that. Maybe they think that I'm pulling a prank on them and the moment that they kind of enter into the doorway, I'm gonna slam it on them or something. Or maybe they just think, he looks really weak. He can't possibly hold that door open. And so they, uh, they, they think that whatever it is, uh, I think that this is the weirdest phenomenon. It's kind of like the people who, whenever they're getting on an elevator, they press the button that has obviously already been uh, pressed as if they kind of have this magical power of ascent and the, the elevator couldn't possibly work without their gift of wizardry or whatever it is. So that's my second pet peeve. A third pet peeve are people who use words and phrases in a way that's actually the opposite of what those words and phrases uh, actually mean. And so for example, when people say literally, they don't mean literally, they actually mean figuratively or metaphorically. Or when people say irregardless, which isn't even a word, and they actually mean regardless. Or people who use the phrase, I could care less rather than I couldn't care less, because if you could care less, then you actually do kind of care, and that's the opposite of what you mean. So that's a third thing that uh, annoys me. A fourth thing are close talkers, people that you're having a conversation with, and they begin to encroach upon your space, and so you create a little more space, and then they encroach upon that space, and so pretty soon you find you've walked all the way across the room backwards, you've walked out the door, you've walked into the parking lot, and you didn't even park on that side. You parked on that side of the building, but these people have just done this. And I think, by the way, that's not an accident. I think they know what they're doing all along, and it's just a big elaborate joke that they're playing, and somewhere there's like a website, and they're keeping track, and they get points for how far they can actually make you walk during that conversation. Or they get points if you fall down or if they can actually make their nose touch your nose or something like that. That's what I feel like with uh, close talkers. If there's one good thing to be had from this pandemic, it's this six foot rule, right? And so I hope that uh, actually uh, sticks around. Uh, Another pet peeve is when all week long it says there's gonna be snow and there hasn't been snow in like five years and then it doesn't snow. 
So I'm annoyed this morning. Uh, and then six, people who are annoyed by every uh, little thing, which means I sometimes annoy uh, myself. But the point is, I have pet peeves. You have pet peeves, uh, too. People who drive too fast, people who drive too uh, slow, whatever it might be. People who are always late, uh, people who are always early, people who set their, let their dogs sit in their laps while they drive. Whatever it is, we all have pet peeves. But what do we do when we get annoyed or when we get frustrated or whatever? We become self-righteous. We tend to air our grievances. We tend to tweet our frustration. We tend to gossip. We tend to slander. We, we, we grow uh, resentful and embittered. We're kind of like the Hulk, right? You wouldn't like us when we're angry. What does this have to do with 1 Corinthians? Well, the Apostle Paul is frustrated. He's annoyed. He's irritated by the Corinthians. They've literally pushed his buttons and he could care less. But what does Paul do? And we'll begin to see that a little bit this morning is he writes a letter. And in that letter, he begins not by airing his grievances, not by saying how annoyed and frustrated he is, not by venting, but instead confessing his gratitude. That's how Paul begins. In the midst of all of this annoyance, all of this frustration, all of this irritation, as we'll see, Corinth is a mess. Paul begins by giving thanks. And so let's pray. And then we'll look at this text together. I ask you first just to pray for yourself as you come in. Maybe you're annoyed, maybe you're frustrated, maybe you're distracted, maybe you're sad, whatever it might be that the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear and grace this morning. And then would you pray that for those around you as well, that the Lord would give us a collective corporate uh, angst to hear his word and, and a passion for it and the ability to understand it. And lastly, for me, for boldness and for faithfulness and humility and all of those things that I need this morning. So Father, we're grateful that you are a good father and you give good gifts and so you've given us your son, you've given us Scripture, you've given us your spirit, and so I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, that we would behold the glories of your word, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, and you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We pray these things because you're good, and you do good, and so we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Let's look at uh, verse four, 1 Corinthians chapter one. Verse four, last week we did the introduction, now we're starting, uh, which is actually part of the introduction uh, as well, but now getting into some of the themes of the letter, and we'll begin in verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So as many of you know, for the past six months or so, we, uh, we preached through certain psalms, and, uh, and I loved that, it was really good for my heart, but at the same time, uh, we found that as we were preaching through the Psalter, it presented a, a certain number of challenges. Namely, it's, it's often really difficult, it's, it's often really hard to adequately expound 20 verses in 45 minutes. It often felt like there were certain things that were left unsaid, little details in the text that we couldn't quite mine. And so one of the reasons that I'm really excited about us getting into 1 Corinthians is that it allows us to dive a bit more deeply into the text, and, uh, and so it's a little easier to explore four to five uh, verses a bit easier than 15 or 20. That said, 
this entire sermon series as we walk through uh, 1 Corinthians for the next year and a half or so won't be exhaustive. Even if we were to spend 45 minutes on every single verse, we wouldn't fully plumb the depths of the text. So there's always this trade-off in regards uh, to trying to say too much and then not say enough. It's kind of like sweet, squeezing the last bit of toothpaste out of a tube. You know, when it comes to toothpaste technique, you have kind of two categories of people. All of humanity can be lumped into one of those two categories. There are those who, at the first slightest signs of resistance, when they have to do the double squeeze or they have to do the fold over or something like that, and they instantly just kind of throw the tube away. And then there's others who are so anxious about getting every single bit out of it that it takes them 10 minutes to brush their teeth because eight or eight and a half or something like that are spent just trying to get one more drop out by the way, I'm in the latter category. My wife is in the, uh, the first category. And so our goal in 1 Corinthians is not to get too bogged down to the point of, of being laborious or, or be boring or something like that. Not that the word is boring, but we sometimes are boring. And so the goal is not to get bogged down to the point of being laborious, but also not to leave too much left in the tube, if you will. So with that said, there's really a few points that I want to draw your attention to in this first verse, verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First, and we mentioned it in the, uh, the, the introduction, but I want you to notice there Paul's gratitude, right? To really understand how profound it is that he would begin with this note of thanks, you, you kind of need to know where the book is going uh, as, we, uh, as we'll read. And so as we read this letter, as we get into 1 Corinthians, we'll see that Corinth is an absolute train wreck. If any of you move to another city and, and you found a new church and then you sent me a letter and you described that new church and you described it like Paul describes the church in Corinth, I would say get out of that church quickly. Go anywhere, anywhere else but there, anywhere is probably better than that particular church. So what is it that's happening in Corinth? Well, there's rampant sexual immorality, right? A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Hopefully that's his stepmom, although that's not much better. There's people that are visiting temple prostitutes. There's people that are getting divorced for unbiblical reasons. There's members that are suing one another for these really petty, divisive sort of issues rather than overlooking offenses or allowing the church to kind of step in and to mediate the dispute. There's people that are fighting over spiritual gifts. They kind of have this fantasy uh, draft of their favorite apostle, choose their favorite preacher, whoever it is. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. Uh, th there are members that are not allowing other members to partake of communion. There's others who are showing up early to drink all of the wine and they get drunk before anyone else has showed up for uh, communion. There's people asserting their rights to the harm of others. There's some people who are even denying that the resurrection has taken place. There's women who are usurping spiritual authority. There's disorderly worship. There's divisiveness. There's greed. There's idolatry. There's pride. In other words, Corinth, Corinth is a ecclesiastical disaster. But in spite of all of that, how does Paul begin? He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. That's really convicting. That's not my natural response to frustration or annoyances or irritation or bitterness or concern or whatever it might be. So why is it that Paul begins that way? Or more than that, why is it that Paul feels that way? Why is it that Paul is grateful, and what is it that he's so grateful about in a word? The answer is grace. That's why and that's what. 
unless you realize what grace really entails, the meaning of grace, you won't really understand why is Paul, uh, Paul is so grateful for it. For a number of reasons that I won't get into, but for a number of reasons, we tend to think of grace uh, less like a gift and more like wages. So imagine that every single time you got a paycheck, you, you, you ran into your boss's office and you fell down at his or her feet uh, with tears in your eyes and you said, thank you, thank you, thank you for my paycheck. That would be weird. Maybe you have the kind of boss that would love it, right? I'm considering making Jared do this from now on, but it's still weird. Why is that weird? Because there's this conceptual difference between the idea of a gift and a wage. Primarily one is earned and the other is not. Should we be grateful for our jobs? Should we be grateful for our paycheck? Should we be grateful for wages? Of of course, yes, we, we should be grateful for everything. But if we should be grateful for earned wages, how much more for unearned grace? which is unmerited, but not just unmerited. You've probably heard that grace is unmerited favor and that's helpful, that's true, but it's also a bit misleading. It doesn't quite go below the surface deep enough because it isn't just unmerited favor, it's actually demerited favor. If we were morally neutral beings and God blessed us with the gift of righteousness, that would be unmerited. That would be unearned favor. But the gospel isn't that we were these morally neutral beings that God simply gave the gift of righteousness to. It's that we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were utterly depraved. So God's love, God's favor, God's kindness isn't merely unmerited, it's actually demerited. It isn't merely that we haven't earned God's favor, that was what unearned means, but that we have earned something else. We've earned wrath, We've earned condemnation, we've earned judgment. So this is why Paul is so grateful for grace. Grace is at the center of Paul's theology. If you were to pluck Paul, he would bleed grace. Not only is it at the center of Paul's theology, but as we study in church history, you'll see it's at the center of Augustine's theology, it's at the center of the Reformation, it is the cure for licentiousness, it's the cure for legalism. Grace is not only the most freeing doctrine that we can believe, but also the most humbling. This is what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions, the message of grace. Why is it the most humbling? Because unless we realize how wretched we truly are, that you're not kind of good, that you're not morally neutral, that you are wicked, that you are evil, unless you realize how wretched you are, you'll never appreciate how gracious God is. If you wanna bask in the glory of God's love for you, and I hope you do wanna bask in that, you have to first understand how utterly unworthy you are of that love. Only when you can comprehend that there is this infinite chasm that exists between God and man can you realize the beauty of the reality that God condescends to man in showing us grace. There's obviously more that we can say about grace. We have and we will, but we need to keep going because we aren't even finished with one verse yet. And so the the next thing uh, that I want you to notice here in this particular verse is this phrase, in Christ Jesus. Notice it's the grace of God that was given you in 
Christ Jesus. Zach talked about this a little bit last week, but it's so important. It's so central to our identity that I want to camp out here. Again, we call this reality. This, uh, the theological term for it is union with Christ. And this idea of being in Christ permeates the New Testament. I'll just give you a few examples of it. Romans 8, 1 through 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, note, in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free, note, in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's in Galatians as well. I didn't include a reference there just for the sake of time, but look at Ephesians chapter one, three through six. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So much of our, so much of your, so much of my frustration, my fear, our anxiety, so much of that arises because we have this failure to comprehend and believe the implications of this doctrine that we call union with Christ. We read the Bible and the Bible calls us saints and yet we don't feel like saints. We know the things that we've done. We read the Bible and the Bible describes the bride of Christ as spotless, but we know we have spots. We have blind spots. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that oftentimes our feelings are more a reflection of the reality that we've forgotten this doctrine called union with Christ. We've forgotten that we are in Christ. The question isn't whether you individually are holy or you individually are spotless, or even if we, Parkway, corporately are holy or spotless in and of ourselves, the question is, are we holy and spotless in Christ? Or better yet, is Christ holy and spotless? That's the question, and of course he is. Then as he is, so are you. That's the doctrine of union with Christ. Where do you find righteousness and holiness and justification and life and joy and sanctification and on and on you could go in Christ. So where does God place you? He places you in Christ. As theologian Robert Raymond wrote, union with Christ is the fountainhead from which flows the Christian's every spiritual blessing. Let me read that again. Union with Christ is the fountainhead from which flows the Christian's every spiritual blessing. Not just some, but every. Think about that for a second. Every spiritual blessing flows from God through your union with his son. Let's keep going. Verse five, 1 Corinthians 1, 5. That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. 
According to Pauline theology, everything that God gives his children is grace. We'll see that in 1 Corinthians. We've seen that before in Romans and, uh, and so forth. In every way, you were enriched, he writes here. So as Paul will ask in chapter four, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. If you have anything, any blessing, any gift, any good that you have is all of God's grace. But here, Paul is going to specify a couple of gifts in particular for the Corinthians. And what's really interesting about this is not only what he does mention, but also what he doesn't mention. And so in particular, he mentions two gifts. He says speech and knowledge. And that's fascinating for a couple of reasons. The first reason is because both of those would have been considered virtues in Greco-Roman culture, where rhetoric was this art form and knowledge was this commodity. But it's also fascinating because Paul will later critique in 1 Corinthians their use of these very gifts. So later in the book, he's going to critique the way that they use speech and knowledge. I'll mention one famous example you've heard at every single wedding that you've ever attended. 1 Corinthians 13 one through two, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, or in modern terms, more cowbell. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So there you go. We get to 1 Corinthians 13 and you'll see the insufficiency, the inadequacy of speech and knowledge. Now what you need to know is that Paul is not critiquing knowledge or speech. Both are good, both are gifts. The problem isn't the gift or the giver, the problem is the recipient and the response. And that brings us to what's missing in this particular introductory section. Because there are a number of similarities that exist between all of Paul's letters, what's called epistolary literature. And so there's a number of similarities between the way that he greets each individual church that he writes to, but there's also some really interesting differences that you can dive into at some point. So I want us to look at what he says about some other churches and then see if you can spot what seems to be missing from his letter to Corinth. Look at Ephesians 1, 15 through 16. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Or look in Colossians 1, 3 through 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So I wonder, did you notice what was missing? What's different between the way that he introduces himself in these particular letters and the way that he introduces himself to Corinth? What's interesting is that when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he mentions speech and knowledge. But in all of these other churches, he tends to talk about love. So why doesn't he mention love to the Corinthians? Because as we'll see, love is where they're lacking. As we read in 1 Corinthians 13, knowledge or speech without love is lacking. That doesn't mean that knowledge is bad or that speech is bad. Again, knowledge is good. Speech is good, but it must be stewarded in love. By the way, the opposite is also true. Contrary to what our culture might think or say or tweet, love is only good when it's exercised according to truth. In fact, love is only loving when it's tethered to the truth. Love without truth is not love. 
if I can give one kind of critique of current evangelical culture, it's this tendency to promote this, uh, this truthless sort of love as if that was a real thing. It's this, this mingling uh, of the idea of love with this emphasis on tone and cultural, cultural niceness and political correctness and so forth. Is there a time that we should speak softly and gently? Of course there is. But there's also times that we need to correct and rebuke, even as Paul will do throughout his letters, and we'll see as we get into 1 Corinthians. But we'll get to that later in the book. For now, let's keep moving. Verse 6. 1 Corinthians 1, 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Here we get to the first hints of the gospel, the, the testimony of Christ. How does grace come to us? What comes to us in Christ, we've already talked about that, union with Christ, but how do we actually receive it? We receive it through a message, through the gospel, through the the testimony, through the good news of the kingdom of God that's made manifest in Christ. By the way, lest you haven't quite caught it yet, this entire opening is saturated, not only with the concept of Christ, but, but with explicit references to Christ. The word Christ, it's going to be used nine times in the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. The word drips from Paul's pen because in Christ is found the consummation of all of Paul's theology. If you ask, what is Paul about? The answer is Paul's about the kingdom. The, Paul is about grace. The, Paul is about Christ because all of those things are interwoven. So the grace of God comes to his people through the gospel about Christ. And then as they em- embrace this good news, and they do so by grace through faith, the the gospel then gives birth to more grace. And we read about that in verse seven, which says, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the source of our conversion is grace. And then the result of that, the fruit of that is an abundance of even more grace. So notice that language of purpose or result or fruit so that you are not lacking in any sort of gift. Now, if you're reading this in the, uh, the Greek, there's something that's interesting that's kind of bobbing on the surface that we might not see as readily in English. In English, we're, we're, we're kind of moving the conversation from talking about grace to all of a sudden talking about gifts. And so we might miss the, uh, the necessary linguistic con- uh, connection. But in Greek, it's more noticeable because the word for grace uh, is charis. And, uh, and the word for gift is charisma. So we get the word charity and, uh, and, and uh, charisma even from, uh, from these words. So charis gives birth to charisma. Grace brings forth or begets gifts. And that makes sense because gifts are grace. Again, think of the difference between an unexpected, unearned sort of gift versus an expected and earned paycheck. So Paul mentions gifts here, which is going to be really interesting. It's kind of foreshadowing because a large portion of this book is going to deal with spiritual gifts, charismata, from which we get the word charismatic. And unfortunately, when Christians tend to, to, to think about or talk about uh, charismata, spiritual gifts today, we tend to get hung up on what are called the, quote, miraculous gifts like tongues and healing and prophecy and so forth. But we'll talk about those as we get to them in 1 Corinthians. But, uh, but we're gonna skip over them now. The reason that we're gonna skip over them now is because it would go against Paul's entire argument to emphasize that. Because Paul's entire argument here in the introduction is that everything is a gift. When he writes about not lacking in any gifts, we need to realize that he doesn't just mean 
the miraculous gifts like prophecy or tongues or healings that charismatics might emphasize. In fact, he doesn't even mean the list of uh, other gifts that we might uh, read about later like faith and administration and teaching and knowledge, uh, knowledge, the various gifts that might come back if you were to take this online spiritual gifts test, which ironically just ends up telling you what you already want to hear. Paul doesn't mean those things whenever he's talking about gifts. He doesn't mean gifts like we tend to think about gifts here. He means literally everything you receive from God. In Paul's theology, everything that you receive from God is a gift. Yes, that includes spiritual gifts like teaching and prayer and wisdom, but also things like regeneration and justification and sanctification and union with Christ and on and on we could go. Again, union with Christ is this fountainhead from which flows every other blessing. So don't read Paul, at least here, through this lens of modern questions about the charismatic movement. That's not his point. Paul says you're not lacking in any gift. And what does that mean? Does that mean that I, Jeff Ashley, am not lacking in any gift of any sort? Well, no, of course not. Just like we can misread Paul through these, uh, the lens of 21st century questions about gifts, so we can also misread him through these modern presuppositions regarding individualism. Here's what I mean. The word you is all over the place in this opening greeting. If you actually have uh, your Bible pulled up on your phone or you have an actual Bible Bible, like a hard uh, copy or something like that in your lap, just look at how often you see the word you in this section. But the you there doesn't refer to an individual. It doesn't refer to Jeff Ashley. It doesn't refer to Todd Pegram. It doesn't refer to Brian Angel on and on we could go. It doesn't refer to individuals. In fact, it doesn't even refer to individual members of the church in Corinth. Guys like Stephanus and Crispus and Gaius, whom we'll read about next week. Instead, this word you throughout the opening is always, without exception, not singular, but plural. In fact, if someone from Texas were translating this, what would it say? Y'all, y'all are not lacking in any gift. What about someone from New Jersey? You guys, right? You guys are not lacking in any gift, right? And then in researching some plural pronouns and regional dialects, I found that in certain parts of Pennsylvania, they say yins. Y-I-N-Z. I've never heard that before. I read it on the internet, so it's got to be true. But the point is that this is corporate. This is collective. Why is that important? Because as we will get into 1 Corinthians, one of the main themes uh, that Paul is going to take pains to point out is that as uh, the poet John Donne would uh, later write, no man is an island. We need community. So a few years back, I was listening to a, a pastor talk about spiritual gifts. And after each one, he would give an example from his own life of how he had personally exercised that gift. Every single one of them. So by the end, I thought, what do you need the church for? You're a one-man body of Christ. By the way, a one-man body of Christ exists his name is Christ. Unless you're him, you don't have every gift. God hasn't given you every gift for your good and for his glory so that you would be humble and you would learn how to love and, uh, and so forth. And so one of the gifts that God gives us is a community in which God gives to us others who are gifted with gifts that we don't individually possess, right? Tim is gifted in ways that I am 
not. And that's a good thing for us. I could not lead you in worship. I couldn't do our website or uh, most of the things that Tim does. Our deacons are gifted in ways that I am not. And that's a really good thing for me. That's a really good thing for you as well. This cultivates humility and a sense of belonging. This is why we need each other. And we'll see that as we get into 1 Corinthians. We'll spend weeks talking about this as we dive into the book, that God appoints these members of the body. That's even the metaphor of the members of the body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, and so forth. That God appoints these members of the body who are different from you, who are gifted in places where you might be lacking for his glory and for your good so that you would love others and be humbled and so forth. But we'll get to that soon enough. But look at this last phrase, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this because something was happening kind of behind the scenes, below the surface that you might not have even noticed. Because the previous verses that we've already looked at were kind of already telling this story and you might have missed it. In that story, we see something that God has done in the past. We see something that God is doing in the present. And then you also see something that God will do in the future. In the past, in verse five, we saw that you were enriched. That's already happened. And then in verse six, you see the testimony was confirmed. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the testimony was confirmed among you. That's also past tense. And then in the present, you see verse seven, you're not lacking present tense. And then you wait, present tense. That's a, uh, that's a reality of the present. And then you wait for what? You wait for the future, for future hope. You wait for the revealing of Jesus Christ where God will do this future work that we read about in verse eight, which says, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now to really understand this, you need to understand something of the idea of the day of the Lord. This is a major theme, in particular in the Old Testament, where the day of the Lord was portrayed in these two uh, different but complementary ways depending on the context. So sometimes whenever you encounter the phrase day of the Lord in the Old Testament, it was a day of joy. It was a day of hope. But then other times, in other contexts, the day of the Lord was pictured as this day of judgment, this day of, uh, of gnashing of teeth and weeping. And the difference wasn't necessarily that there were two different days so much as that there were two different peoples that are inhabiting two different kingdoms and there are thus two different destinies. Think of uh, vampire mythology, but you never thought you'd hear that in a sermon. But what happens in traditional vampire mythology when the sun rises? I'm not talking about like in the Twilight books and Edward just glows or something like that. But in the historic sort of myths, all right? Well, for humans, that's the advent of hope and joy. The vampires uh, are gone all of a sudden, and so you're free. But what about if you are a vampire, if you're Dracula or Lestat or something like that? What is that dawning for you? It's destruction. And that's kind of like the day of the Lord that you see in Scripture. For some, it's a day of life. For others, it's a day of death. For some, it's a day of hope. For others, it's a day of destruction. For some, it's a day of joy. For others, it's a day of judgment. So it's a really big deal that Paul is going to say not only that the church will be sustained until then, until the day of the Lord, but also that they will be guiltless in that day. And the reason that that is such a big deal is because they aren't guiltless now, at least not in and of themselves. Again, this is a messed up Church, so how will they be guiltless in the day of Christ? Because they're first in Christ. 
That's the importance of union with Christ. It is everywhere. We're not gonna point it out every single place that we see it in 1 Corinthians, but it is, it undergirds every single thing in 1 Corinthians. It's kind of like the foundation of your house. You don't notice your foundation, but it is always there undergirding everything. So yet we see again a little foreshadowing here in the introduction, a little hint of something that will be a huge theme in 1 Corinthians, and that is eschatology or end times. The entire 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians will be devoted to questions about the return of Christ and our resurrection. So I won't spend time on it now except to simply note that it is God who sustains. Notice that. God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your ultimate hope, my ultimate hope, is not that you or I would wake up each day and just make the choice kind of white-knuckle it to keep on choosing to love Jesus, my hope instead, your hope instead, is that God will keep loving me. And thankfully, that hope isn't just wishful thinking. Look at verse nine, which says, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So how do we know not only that we will persevere, that God will sustain us, but that we will flourish in the day of the Lord, that we will experience dancing and joy rather than judgment and gnashing of teeth? The answer is because God is faithful. In fact, in a second, we're gonna sing, great is thy faithfulness. This is one of the reasons that we always want to remind you that theology is practical. Theology is profoundly relevant to our life. Why is it important that you know things like the immutability of God, the doctrine that God cannot change? Why is it important that you know that God is omniscient, that God's omnipresent, that God is omnipotent? Why is it important that you know all of these attributes about God? Because those doctrines are fuel for your worship. Your worship burns brighter and hotter the more doctrine that you have. We've said it before, we'll say it again. Your theology is the ceiling for your doxology. It's also the fuel for your doxology, which is the study of worship. You cannot love what you don't know. And so here the kindling for our worship is the faithfulness of God. Now when we think of faithfulness, we probably have some image of that from our own lives all right, so I know a lot of guys who are really faithful, really trustworthy. I could mention a number of the, the elders and, and deacons, not that there's some deacons or elders I would mention who aren't faithful, but you get my point. Uh, but one guy in particular that I think of when I think of the word faithful is uh, Zach. I give him a hard time, but he is also one of the just most faithful guys that I know. If I ask him to do me a favor, I always know it's going to be done and it's going to be done early. And when I mean early, I mean sometimes too early like he's already done the task before I've even assigned it to him or something like that. There have literally been times he'll be assigned something during a staff meeting and he'll be done with the task during staff meeting and he didn't leave the room. So I don't know how he does that. Uh, or uh, or we'll, we'll have these uh, meetings and he's always on time for those meetings. And by on time, I mean early. And by early, I mean strangely, eerily uh, early. Uh, there was a, a, a few months back, I think this was actually pre-COVID, um, uh, Casey and I were going to have dinner with, uh, with Zach and Katie, and we were going to Mikosina, which is one of our favorite places to go together. And, uh, and so we were meeting at five, and at four o'clock, for whatever reason, we touched base with Katie, and she said, Zach's already there, he's waiting. 
And I thought, that is way early. So, uh, so Zach is trustworthy, he's faithful, but he's also strange. Uh, but here's my point. Zach has been late before. It's rare, right? It typically involves some sort of elaborate, extenuating circumstance, but it has happened. But that isn't like God's faithfulness. When we say that God is faithful, we don't mean that he's faithful in the same way that your friend might be faithful or your dad might be faithful or your wife might be faithful or whatever it is. He has no extenuating circumstance. There is nothing that's outside of his control. There's nothing that's outside his knowledge. There's nothing beyond him. There's no inclement weather for one who has storehouses of snow and controls the wind and the waves and the storms. There's no flat tires that could possibly delay the one who holds all things into existence by the word of his power. There's no broken clocks or unset alarms for one who created time. So when it says that God is faithful, don't picture some sort of caricature of faithfulness. This is perfect faithfulness. In fact, it isn't only that God is faithful, but that he can't be unfaithful. It's against his very nature. And this is true generally, but there is a particular manifestation of that faithfulness that Paul highlights here, and that is our calling. Notice that. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. What does it mean to be called? We saw this last week where Paul wrote to those who are, quote, called to be saints. And this will be a huge part of 1 Corinthians, as it is a huge part of all of Paul's letters. And when I think about calling today, I typically think of phone calls, right? Not just any phone, though. I don't think of this rotary phone or a sweet Sports Illustrated football phone from my childhood or something like that. I think typically of smartphones and I think of phones with caller IDs, with a screen, you actually see who's calling. So now anytime my phone rings, I do two things. The first thing I do is I get annoyed. All right, I should have added that to my list of pet peeves. Why does that annoy me? Because why would you call someone when you can just text them, all right? That's why texting was invented. So I get annoyed, but then I look to see who's calling and I generally screen my calls, all right? So I don't answer a call if it says uh, unknown or if it says blocked or if it says spam risk or if it says Carl Brower or something like that. I'm just kidding. Carl doesn't have my phone number. Uh, so, <laughs> again, uh, contrast that though with whenever I was a kid. Whenever I'm a kid, I love to answer the phone, right? It's this exciting world. It's euphoric, all right? A lot of things that you loved as a kid, you now hate uh, checking the mail is another one of those things, right? You used to love it and then now it's kind of depressing because it's just bills. But answering a phone call is like that for me now. I look at the phone with this mild annoyance and dread that someone would disturb my little kingdom. But when we think of God's call, we shouldn't think of this sort of telephone uh, image. Maybe they'll answer, maybe they won't. Who knows, maybe they're in a meeting, maybe they're home, maybe they're not, maybe they're on another call. That's not the way that God's calling functions in Pauline theology. So get that image out of your mind completely. Instead, the word call is a very technical term in Paul's letters. It's actually different from how you see other authors in scripture use the word call. They typically use the word more to refer to this sort of general gospel call. The gospel has gone out to all of creation. That's not how Paul generally uses the term. When Paul uses the term, he means that God's calling is to use a theological term, irresistible, or to use another fancy theological term, efficacious. 
God's calling accomplishes what it's intended to accomplish. So when God calls us into fellowship with his son, we enter into fellowship with his son. God never does this, I hope they answer, I hope they're home, I hope they have their phone, I hope they're not in a meeting, sort of wishful thinking kind of thing. The same way that when you read Genesis chapter one and God calls light into being, and we don't think that there's this moment where the darkness debates whether or not they're going to actually obey, that's the way that you should think of God's calling. God is sovereign when he speaks He acts. So when he calls, his call accomplishes his desire and his design and his purpose. Look at Romans chapter eight. In verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice what's called the golden chain of salvation. That those who are predestined are called. In fact, all who are predestined are called. And all who are called are justified. There's no such thing as being predestined, but not called. There's no such thing as being called in this Pauline sense, but not justified. And so if we're predestined, and if we're called, and if we're justified, then we will certainly be glorified. None who are justified are not glorified. That is a logical impossibility because the glorification of God God's children is rooted in the faithfulness of God himself. In other words, no one falls through the cracks of God's faithfulness because there are no cracks. He is infallibly faithful. This is why questions when people ask about losing their salvation often miss the point. The point isn't my faithfulness or your faithfulness or my will or your will, but rather the question is God's faithfulness and God's will. The question isn't, can I lose something? Yes, of course I can lose something. I lose things all the time. The question is, can God lose something? Can God lose those whom he doesn't intend to lose? That's the real question. And the answer is overwhelmingly clear. God is faithful. And so those who are called into fellowship with Christ will be glorified with Christ and guiltless in the day of Christ. So this text is admittedly a bit weird. It's kind of like last week's sermon. In some sense, it's just kind of this intro to the book. But in another sense, you might think of it as a preview or or, or an overview of what's to come in the weeks and uh, and months ahead. You might think of it as kind of a a chef's sampler. Imagine that you're going to this really fancy restaurant, this, you know, not chilies like Zach's always talks about, but like a Michelin-starred restaurant or something. And it's the first time you've ever gone there. You have a gift card, so you're not worrying about it. And the chef comes to your table and he says, what would you like? And so you say, well, what's good? And he slaps you in the face because everything's good and you've insulted him. So the chef goes back into his kitchen though and, uh, and he, he kind of prepares this little sampler, all of his favorite dishes. And he, he says, taste everything And the next time you come, you can order whatever it is you prefer. That's kind of what our text is going to do this morning. It kind of whets the appetite. We have this little taste of grace with also these hints of apostolic displeasure with this particular church. We'll get to feast on that later. We have this slight sprinkling of conversation about the gifts of the Spirit, the proper response to those gifts. We'll sit down and really chew on that later. 
We get a little hint of the message of Christ, our union with Christ, a, a dash of eschatology and our ultimate hope and the importance of our corporate unity and the divorce, diversity of the body. Each of these we'll come back to and feast upon in the weeks ahead. So my question for you is, by way of preview and intro to the book, what are you most excited about? Spiritual gifts, gender rules, questions about divorce and remarriage, questions about the resurrection body, what that will be like, questions about head coverings, suing other Christians, church discipline. There's a lot in here that we will cover theologically. So what are you most excited about? And then what are you most anxious about? One person's excitement is another person's anxiety. So is there anything that you're hiding that you're afraid of confronting in 1 Corinthians? Is there sexual sin? And so you're afraid as we get into chapter five and talk about that in church discipline. Is it the responsibility to lay down your rights for others because you're really uh, one of those people who clings to those as we all tend to do to some degree? Is it idolatry? Is it pride? Is it divisiveness? What is it that you're anxious that this book is going to uncover? If we're honest, there's a lot of things that we'll encounter over the next 16 months or so that will really disrupt us, that will maybe even anger us, maybe even annoy us or frustrate us. It's a pretty poor sermon that makes you feel good about yourself because you aren't good but Christ is, and that's the point that we'll see throughout this book. Gospel is, scripture is. So I can assure you that your discomfort in light of this series is going to be a good thing. That itself is God's grace to us. Let's pray as we prepare for communion. Father, I pray um, for your help. As we spend a year and a half or so in this book, I pray that you would challenge us that we would never grow uh, complacent, that we would never think that we have somehow outgrown the gospel, that we would never think that we've somehow perfectly arrived and we've outgrown the need for repentance or outgrown uh, the need for uh, you to continue to teach us and shape us and mold us, that we would uh, be true uh, learners, that we would uh, hunger and thirst for your word and for our lives to be changed by it. And, uh, and for all of these uh, things that we'll see in this book, I pray that you would just work uh, your grace in us individually and us corporately. We pray these things because you're good and you care about all of these things that I just asked for more uh, than I do or we do. And so I pray for your help in Christ's name, amen.